This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Tom McLeod. Tom is founder and executive director of Archive, the first ever decentralized museum. We discuss Tom's early career in music and technology, the inspiration to start a museum, and the inner workings of the Archive community, including voting, incentives, and ownership. Please enjoy my conversation with Tom. Tom, thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to have you. Excited to be here, man. This is going to be fun. I think this Instagram post is probably like five years old now. But when you were in second grade, you wrote an essay. And like a lot of second graders, you wanted to grow up and be rich. But you said you wanted to earn money by working at a computer company. The reason why I want to do this is that I like computers since they are fun to use and a lot of kids like them. I just love this place to start second grade and your vision for where you'd go working in technology. So what was that like? Where did that come from? Do you remember? Wow. Yeah, I definitely did post that and I definitely did write it. So context, in second grade, I had left a bougie private school that my parents had saved. They were working multiple jobs to take me. It's called Wardlaw Hartridge in New Jersey, one of the top three or four private schools there. And my mom was a public school teacher. So was my father. And they were like, we're going to give him a great education. He's going to go to this main school. And in the middle of first grade, they decided that I wasn't getting a significantly better education than I was in the public school systems that they had seen, yet they were paying crazy amounts to try to do it, really sacrificing for the family there. So they pulled me out and I ended up going to a special school, like a weird 80s, early 90s, hippie special school. And it was called Lynn Hill for the Gifted and Talented. So you had to take an IQ test to get in, all this stuff. Creative thinking was a class. Every day we had creative thinking. When it was raining out for gym, we took French. We had chess in third grade, all these different things. And what happens is in second grade, my dad actually had computers when I was younger. We always had computers. And he knew a little bit of programming. And he ended up to help pay for the tuition to the school. He was the gym teacher. Or on a rainy day that year, he was the computer teacher. They had 13 Commodore 64 computers. We were learning a logo which had this little turtle. Oh yeah, the turtle could draw like the hexagon. Yes. I remember that. Yeah. RT90, then LT30. And you would make little drawings with program and we would learn basic. Like go sub 10 print, my name is Tom and go sub line 30. And you had to name all the lines. And I loved it, man. I loved this little thing where I could type stuff in and it also didn't hurt that my father was teaching it. So it was like, I got to hang out with my dad at school and we got to do these things. And I understood at that point because it was being drilled into me that computers could be the thing that could be the way up and out. The reason we're teaching you this is not just because it's math or something. This could be a catalyst for you getting out. And the fact that I enjoyed it, they kept doubling down. Yeah, you can do this. 
As I continued to grow up, my parents got me a cable modem for Christmas one year. I was one of the first kids I knew that had a one megabit cable modem put in our house because I convinced them that faster internet, I was going to learn more in computing that it's always been a part of it. And even back then, I looked at computers as this mega opportunity to do more. And rich is probably the oversimplification of like a second grader's mind. But I meant that like living richly broadly, like this could be more than where I'm at. So as I went through your career, and I think it's worth going through it a little bit in chronological order because it leads to Archive today. So how did this computer coder kid learning French end up at indie music? Another weird set of interesting circumstances. I went to American University in DC. I went to school thinking I wanted to do recording. I was going to record things. I ended up going into broadcast communications because I thought I would learn how to use a mixing board from learning how to record newscasters and things in a mixing room at a broadcast center. I used to play, I still do, played a ton of basketball. And there was this guy, every day he would bring a big external hard drive to the basketball court. Three months in, I finally, I'm like, dude, what is this? Why are you lugging around a hard drive to the basketball court? And he goes, because I'm in the audio engineering major, I bring this to the studio. This is how we save all of our stuff. And I go, wait, we have an audio engineering major? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, there's 17 of us, College of Arts and Sciences. We have a whole music studio on campus. So I completely missed the exact major I wanted existed there. The next day, I went to my guidance counselor, who for the record, didn't tell me it existed either. Switched <laughs> to my major, ended up with a bachelor's of science degree in audio engineering. And in my senior year, I realized that after about 11 p.m., no one would use the studio, but I was now certified that I could use it whenever I wanted. So I started recording local bands and rappers and girls with guitars from like 11 to 5 in the morning because I had a free studio and I cut my teeth doing that. And that's how I got into it. So after that, we had enough people that we were working with and I'd recorded enough that we started a small music studio and record label right after I graduated. And that's what I did until roughly 2008. Incredible. And then where did you go after that? 2008, weird year on the planet. Lots of things failed. <laughs> Housing crisis, global economy. If you were around in 2008 in music and you didn't fully see the wave of streaming, and you're not recognizing that Moore's Law is making it very cheap to start recording things on laptops, and you're a guy sitting there like, I have a full music studio and independent record label based upon the way things worked 15 years ago. We were right at the crosshairs, man, where no one wanted an independent record label anymore. They wanted you to figure out how to grow your MySpace page to 6,000 followers and prove that you could get people before you get signed to a major label. Everyone who wanted to record, suddenly you were feeding a beast of singles. An album didn't matter as much. People didn't care as much about a CD. You kept pumping stuff out. You didn't need the same thing. In fact, the grungier sound, that was the aesthetic. So I was sitting there with an independent label in a music studio, and suddenly all the people really wanted was custom MySpace pages. So that's what I started doing. I switched from the audio engineering to my comp sci minor, which obviously we now know I've been thinking about since second grade and started doing websites and MySpace pages for the music artists. That became, well, if I can do a website for a musician, I can do a website for a bakery or a law firm. Turned out that most of those folks just wanted to have an updated presence. They had gotten some very intense website built for them in 2005 that cost them an arm and a leg, and they had to pay someone every time they wanted to change it. 
And I had a friend who became my co-founder, who I'd had my first computer science class with my freshman year, same thing back seven or eight years prior to this. He had been running an interactive agency doing web development in Bethesda. I was like, hey man, what if we built a super simple content management system? I'm spending all this time building these websites for small businesses. It takes me more time to install early WordPress and Drupal and Joomla than I actually do to make the entire site. And they don't need it all. They just need to update their specials or add a partner to the law firm. So we built that. It's called PageLime. It grows to about 30,000 subscribers. We're 24 years old and we have a little SaaS business. I let all the artists out of their contracts. Some of them are still close friends. I go full bore into tech, never touch a stage again for a long time. So you go from art to this Web2 career and we'll dive deep into Archive, your venture today. But before Archive is this thing Omni. I love when founders have this moment where their career, which seems circuitous, like you went here and it went there and things happen to suddenly having this moment. And I feel like you had that. Can you tell the story of Omni and then how you got to Archive? Even between Omni and PageLock, there was a company. So we could have competed against Squarespace or Wix. There was a moment when we were way bigger than those folks. We just didn't build the builder. We were just the editor. In either a lucky choice or the ignorance of youth, Instead of doing that, we said, well, we have this cash flow business. We'd have to raise a bunch of money to compete against these Squarespace folks now. We could just keep owning our business. The iPhone came out. And so we've actually launched 17 iPhone apps in three years from roughly 2010 to 2013, 11 of them failing miserably, four doing all right, and then two doing in the sort of tens of millions of users range. And we became really enamored with that space. And I moved from DC to San Francisco. I went from a two-bedroom apartment in DC to a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco at twice the price, half the size, with a wife and a cat. And I was like, this is miserable. So the next day, we moved 40% of our stuff into a storage unit. Flashed forward five years later, we sold an app to Tencent, and we didn't go. And my co-founder wants to start a gaming company. And I'm like, I don't really want to do that. I was looking at a bill, and I was like, I haven't been to that storage unit in five years. I've paid for the stuff that was in there 10 times over. Some old sneakers and a baseball cap and a boogie board. I remembered thinking if I could have seen all of that, I would have probably used it a lot more or I would have sold it or I would have done something. And Omni came out of that, living in tight urban density with a few items. What if we could unlock the use cases for them? Early on in the Omni story, the business was always going to be, you live in 450 square feet in San Francisco with two roommates and you like to go camping. Where do you put the tent? Where do you put the dirt bike? Where do you put the lantern? You can't have it on the kitchen table there. What if you needed it on Friday? What would it look like? Well, I wanted Dropbox. I wanted Dropbox for real stuff. That's what the genesis was. Early on, we started getting things that we weren't expecting. So we thought we were going to get the dirt bikes and the tents and the canteens, and we got those. But also we would get a random Super Nintendo, brand new in a box or a Spider-Man number 39.9, graded case. We would get these things that we did not know how to deal with from a storage perspective. I can't just stick them next to the dirt bike. Like <laughs> It's got to be different. And so we would build out these little vault rooms inside of the warehouses. And I had a little thumbprint where I could go and view those things because me, the shift manager and the head of ops, could browse those rooms. And every week I would go in and it was like a little museum that was curated by people. This is what people cared about. This is what their interests were. This is what they spend money. They talk about on Reddit. They go on forums. They discuss. It's all the hobby and items that they care about that they still couldn't necessarily keep in their spaces. 
And it always stuck with me, this genius of the commons that people have these things that they know a lot about and are extremely passionate about, but it's not their full-time job. So they can't scale it. They're not at a conference every week. They're not broker dealers flipping comics, but they know about it and they care about it. And that was the roots of archive. These little rooms in Omni where people were storing amazing little pieces of memorabilia and culture and art. What would it look like if we let them do that together? What if we tapped into that tea? Why don't you give the listeners who aren't as familiar with Archive a high-level sketch of what is the mission of Archive and what are you trying to do with this? The mission is functionally, what would it look like to build a museum today if you were starting from scratch? With the community first. So the community is the curatorial team. The way you experience things now is maybe you buy a membership or a ticket, and that item allows you to go view things that were presented to you. In our world, your membership allows your capital that's been purchased through that membership to enter into a treasury that you can then subsequently vote on the allocation of it. So you're now curating and participating and can then view those items. And where a lot of the membership fees in a traditional museum are going into the upkeep of the space because they have walls and property and security 24-7 and air conditioning, we remove that OPEX and we let those items go out to places that we think maximize their impact. So we put them out on a grid of the whole world. We're not bounded by that space. So you can go view it and other people can view it. And in the opposite of a traditional museum, where because of their space requirements, they usually have to keep some large percentage of it off the floor. We can keep 100% of our stuff or at least attempt to out in the world where people can experience it at all times. The exploded view of a museum is how I think about it. Let's break it down into different pieces of what archive is. The first thing, we talked about this in the past, when you say museum and curator, I naively or uncultured think of really rich old people donating stuff. There's a wing named after them in a museum, and they've been able to collect these very expensive things. So when you think about curation, I think what you're doing is completely different to that. How do you think about finding the pieces in this new form of a museum? The way we've approached it is you have to maintain some of the core tenets of the museum. There's a part of it that you don't want to evolve. That is the research. That is the impact. That is the education, the editorial. Putting things in perspective is important. Museums are incredibly valuable, soft power instruments of showing what the world is and what it was. With that, we've brought on a curatorial team that out of the gate, we think of it as pipe one. So the way items enter into the archive from pipe one is we have a team that we pay, a curatorial team that suggests items for the community. And then everyone in the community gets to vote. Simple consensus, usually between two or three items max. And right now we're on a cadence of roughly one item every month that's presented and the community then votes on it. But part of that vote is they get informed. So we actually are putting out why this matters, interviews with the artists or the creators or the people behind it or the owners, how they've had it, what's the story behind it. So everyone gets to understand why this is relevant. And then all of that gets put together out into the world. So all the research, all the conversations, all the things that happen get put out just like a museum's curatorial committee would in a traditional museum sense. So we're mimicking a lot of that, but we're flipping it. Instead of it being five people in a room over six months picking things out, it's hundreds of people over time, thousands of people making this decision and discussing it without necessarily the constraints of the specific location or the place that they have it under or the outside influence of dollars that are being placed into the museum beyond themselves. So you mentioned the membership is deciding that. And I believe right now this is an invite-only type of process. How do you apply to be a member and archive? How do you then decide who gets to be in those early hundred people to decide which items archive is going to purchase? 
in the current state, we think it's really important to be intentional with communities. I think a lot of times you see things crumble under a lack of connective tissue. Mostly what we're looking for is, first of all, the application isn't just submit your email, we'll let you know when you're in. It's not a wait list. It's deliberately probably at least a four or five minute process, which isn't crazy long, but you'd be shocked at how much of that creates a deliberate drop off and funnel. Like if I told you my mobile app had a five minute sign up, you would never invest in that company. In this case, it basically is there to show who really wants to be a part of it. Again, I'm not on that, but there's another team that's looking on the community side looking for passion. What's this thing that you've cared about? Tell us what you've collected in the past. Tell us what you want to learn about. If you came because you like watches, what's the thing that you hope to learn more about that you don't know about? What's the thing that you think you can contribute? Is that a deep knowledge of sports memorabilia? Amazing. What's the thing that you hope to learn? Is that about fine art and the differentiation of contemporary and modern? What does that look like and how does that come together? That's what we've been focusing on because we want to see that initial group with that feeling. When you get in right now, what it's basically pushing towards is this idea that this is going to be the group of people who can become members when an initial mint starts. The mint will be opened up significantly wider. There'll be other opportunities for people to participate outside of the folks in there. But it is trying to lock in that there's a group of people in the beginning that have already done it at least once. They've been through it. They've worked on the process to acquire. We've iterated through. And we iterated through before financialization. We've raised venture capital in this case. Some of that is very expensive money. That is being allocated to acquisitions just so we don't have to talk about other people's capital at the moment. We can functionally say, think about items in the impact only sense and how do we evolve the system for that? And then as money comes into play, we can add that as a new variable, but we have a pretty good understanding of how to do it in absence of it. And that's been the focus thus far in the creation of everything. This is definitely something that helps understanding in phases like where you are today, where you're going and what it could be. The venture capital money you raise, that's your bank account to acquire assets. It's operations. It's paying for curators. It's paying for logistics. It's paying for everything out of the gate. We think of the archive exploration company like the Smithsonian Institute. (laughs) Something is overseeing the ops. Something is reporting the accounting. Something is handling that. It's the infrastructure of the system. The DAO then has governance control over a lot of other parts, but that's what it exists for. Someone has to move the art from Delaware to Detroit. So the DAO today doesn't own the assets? The company currently owns the assets because the company has put forward all the capital. When it switches to community-owned capital, the community will then own the assets. Let's talk about that when you move to community-owned capital, because you've been very thoughtful, phase one, over who's coming in, applications, why do you want to be here, which is really interesting to me. When you think about a club or joint interest, it makes sense that there should be some sort of how do you get in. But once you turn that into a marketplace, how does it not become just pay to play where if these memberships go for sale, it makes sense that you were a really great artist, you had an awesome view, but if some wealthy person wants to buy your membership off you, why can't they just buy their way into this special group? We've basically built out a non-tokenized internal point system we call archive points. Archive points functionally exist to create this balance between pure capital and engagement. Engagement, I think of as its own value and its own currency. So people that are working, that are doing things, that are participating in the community, even if at some point it becomes overly financially incentivized for you to exit maybe your direct membership NFT because it's become significantly valuable, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't still be rewarded for the time and energy you put in. Archive points are a way to allow you to maintain some degree of voting weight, to still have access to participation. You'll probably lose things like tickets and perks and a lot of these external pieces of the community, but you'll still be able to function in the core part. It also gives us a way for people that don't necessarily have capital to earn their way in. So one of the core things that we're thinking about with Archive is how do you do things on behalf of the collection 
verify that it still exists, to go see items, to do things out in the world that work with it, that help verify and prove and interact with the items. Every time you do that, you can earn archive points whether you're in the community or not. So over time, there's a way that you can simply participate in the system by doing good works, almost like the way a mining fee might work on Ethereum. Like you can do that from acts of visiting and participating. So that's how we think about the democratic side of it, that over time, there can be millions of people that potentially have archive points that have some value. The NFT just sets a floor. You'll never have less than the vote of your NFT. That'll always be there for you. You can always participate in everything. You can still expand beyond it. Interesting because I think a lot of people have one membership, one vote, or maybe they have shares you can buy. It's a lot more like a investment group. In this case, are all the ways you earn archive points objective? Like if you do this, you get this many points or is there a subjective, like this person has just been unbelievably helpful. Every time we ask a question, they deserve a bonus round. So is it subjective or objective points? They are objective, but the creation of the reasons could be subjective. Let me back that out. We have a welcome Wednesday call. On Welcome Wednesdays, when new community members come together, a bunch of folks jump on the call. They all tell everyone things. In the last few weeks, we've started letting members showcase their interesting collections on those as a way to show people. We had a person show their watches last week. This week, we had someone show they had just sets of classic magazine covers, hundreds of them. And she showed them and had them all on display. And we voted that... If you participate in the showing of your collection on a Welcome Wednesday, that should get you 25 archive points. It was a subjective choice that that should be nominated as a thing. But now going forward, the act of doing that guarantees you a certain threshold of points for participating. So that's how we look at it, because you've done something that's made the community stronger and benefit, and you're taking time and energy out to do it. You should also be rewarded with more vote in that case. But these votes are non-financial. They're not a token. They're non-tradable. These are purely tied to you and your wallet as a person. That's a very interesting way to try to handle this problem of, I paid a bunch of money. I'm not going to be active at all or participate and just go along versus I'm really being active. I don't have the money, but having a lot more clout in the group or ability to vote. So let's walk through the mechanics of a vote. I thought the first thing you guys got was really cool, the ENIAC patent, which I want to go into. But take us back before you decided to buy the ENIAC patent, the first computer, the curation committee, I guess, set up two items that people could vote for. Is that how it worked? Yeah. How did the group decide that? The actual first thing is we set a curatorial theme for the year. I'll tell you what my number one fear is in life. I call it the Bodie McBoatface problem. Bodie McBoatface was this experiment to name a boat. I think it was in the UK about six years ago. Everyone could vote to name a vessel. As long as it didn't offend a specific group of people or have foul language, they would name the boat whatever. And the internet doing what the internet does named the boat Bodie McBoatface. (laughs) So there's a (laughs) naval seaworthy British vessel that is this giant boat called Bodie McBoatface. I live in fear of Bodie McBoatface. Even with 15 people early on, folks hanging out, thinking about what could we do, it's too big. You can't give everyone infinite possibilities. You have to start to create refinement, levels of abstraction down, and then some kind of a guide rail. And people want that at some level. It's actually not that fun to just throw things out and never have any opportunity for them to happen. You want to be able to put things in that you can actually see something happen. So we realized we needed to come up with a theme for the year. That theme was the first thing we came up with. And that for 2022 is when technology was a game changer. So it's this idea of tying it to Web3 and this moment in time. And there's a lot of different places and items and things across almost every strata that you can think of that involve technology as a key turning point in what happened there. 
When we looked at that, we then said, cool, what are the genesis items for this collection? And we started thinking about things like patents and prototypes and things that changed the whole thing. And so in that first one, the items that were presented were the ENIAC patent and actually the prototype for the first Burton snowboard that Burton himself actually used to ride. Crazy, like handmade and wood, awesome item. We had the head archivist for Burton Snowboards and this guy, Norman, who owned the ENIAC patent and runs a website called thehistoryofinformation.com. 10,000 books, 40 years doing rare book collecting. And they came on, they talked to us about both those objects and why they mattered, et cetera. And it ended up that we voted for the patent, but it was super controversial. And this is when I knew we were onto something. The discussion quickly became the patent itself is representative of the object, but it's not the object. Had it been the ENIAC computer itself or a piece of it, that might be very impactful. But a patent could also potentially even be seen as a thing that stops technological progress. Patents and copyrights and trademarks might actually decrease the likelihood. So one side came very hard with that. And the idea that the snowboard was very niche, that while this is clearly the object that changed an industry and things were never the same after this happened, the amount of people who might actually find this relevant is very small. And over time, the relevancy thing won. But when you look back on it, it was also like, that's a great debate. Everyone came up with this narrow band set of reasonings and we got there and we ended up getting the patent. And I think it was long tail, the right call. And it's an amazing piece to see. And it really ties the whole thing together when you think about a global supercomputer. And this is the first thing that represents that and all these different pieces. But even that, there's been controversy since day one. Everyone gets into heated debates. That's awesome. I have a question about the next steps of that. But how does stuff like this get sourced? How do you know the NEI patents for sale or the people that own the burn snowboard? How do you source items of this caliber that are so special? At scale, this is the sauce. The sauce is that you have this community of people and you now have access to everyone's community themselves. So if you had a thousand people or 10,000 people, you look around them and you're like, how many people do they all know? And if they're somewhat aligned with the things that they care about. So if you have one tier one comic book collector, he knows 50 other tier one comic book collectors. Even if they're not in the space, he knows where they are. He's like, oh yeah, Jerry. Jerry has that <laughs> Spider-Man. I can call Jerry. In this exact case, we had two people. We had Nate Bosshard, who also ended up being an investor in Archive, who knew the team at Burton and knew about this object and was able to connect us there. And he was already in the community. This is pre-investment. And we had a guy, Kevin. Kevin is a rare book collector. He actually runs the rarebooksleuth.com and had joined the community. He knew Norman and knew Norman had this patent. And they both reached out to their networks to see if there were viable options, secured that we could get them. So we actually got them from the community. The community knew how to get to it. And I look at that as at scale, we can get to anything. Who won't we be able to find? What objects won't we be able to get to? That becomes pretty powerful. And that's what's happened for the record on every single object. Every object now has been through a relationship of someone in the community once proposing those things against the theme. Even when the curatorial committee puts it together, we still find the items through their relationships. When an item like that comes in, how does pricing and valuation work? How do you price something like that? In this case, it's super interesting. Art in general, collectibles, the only thing wilder than crypto is art and collectibles. The amount of accelerated knowledge I feel like I've gotten in the last eight months or so, you think shenanigans are happening on Web3. At least shenanigans in Web3, there's a ledger. You can go and see them. You can throw in Nansen and figure out what the hell is happening there. 
people are doing stuff in art. I mean, their families in Switzerland are buying things at 20% off, but agreeing to lock them up in mountain vaults for 30 years to create scarcity so that someone can donate a thing to a museum to get a tax write-off that they then flip their other ones because the museum is the appraiser as well as the tax write-off grant. And it's all unregulated. And it's never going to get regulated because everyone moves their money through these things. The people who write the regulations also have massive exposure to these markets, and they've just agreed that this is fine. In this case, it's interesting. The person who owned that patent, Jeremy Norman, is basically one of the foremost appraisers of rare books in the world. Google has an entire collection of books. He goes up to Mountain View and literally appraises their collection. So he basically created a certified document, signed it, squeezed his symbol on it and said, this is what I appraise this item for. And it also sold it to us below that price, which was nice <laughs> as a discount because he loved what we were doing. But he's like, I feel like any day at auction at the right moment, this is what this would fetch with a decent amount of marketing and the right people in the room. And that's what you see on all of these. It's this floor price. There's no way it doesn't sell for this because there's a market at this level, no matter what. Here's your top. Your top is what you'd probably insure something for. And this is what we think the fair price is at market at any given day. So all of that aligns with your speed to exit and liquidity needs. But that's what we do. We're working with people across all those different markets. And in some cases, we're now trying to figure out how to programmatize that. People should definitely go to the archive website because when you guys bought ENIAC, and I think about this time back to our first question, the second grader who wanted to work for a computer company, buying the ENIAC patent, just being so powerful. And the video you did, I absolutely love for a couple of reasons. It's a short video and it's you going to Norman's house or Batcave, whatever it is. The first thing that struck me is you open up these vaults. Norman's twisting these vaults and these books are becoming available. And the first thing I thought was, wow, these are a bunch of cool things nobody's ever going to see. And then he puts it in your hand. And I saw the second grader holding the patent. I just thought it was such a powerful moment. What was that like to hold that? First of all, he's just such an interesting guy. I've been calling him Norman because I go by his last name, but it's Jeremy Norman. I was like, should I touch this? <laughs> That's what I thought. And he looked at me, he goes, it's a book. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, this is worth a lot of money. It's a rare piece of history. It's the only one. Should I put gloves on? He was like, I'll tell you something about books. They stick around. <laughs> He's like, I got 10,000 of them. I've dropped them. The books are fine. The books aren't going where I keep them away from fire. <laughs> I held it. I opened it up. The first thing that struck me was how big it was. So I don't know what I thought a patent looked like. I kind of thought a patent is like a certificate. In my head, a patent is a couple pages. You flip through it, maybe. It's a folded certificate. It says this is what it does. This patent is hundreds of pages long. It's thick. Pieces fold out. It's a gigantic thing. I look at him. I was like, this is big. Like, this is a lot. He's like, yeah, it was a big computer. I, was like, <laughs> I guess so. He's like, a lot of the stuff in here, you got to document it. You have to document every single vacuum tube. He was showing me, he's like, this is a bit. You got bits and bytes. He's like, a bit was eight vacuum tubes. This one was on, this one was off. And you'd program these things by turning on the tubes. Every one of those is a system. You had to outline every single bit of that for the patent. This is before solid state transistors, when you would just say the silicon chip transistor does a million things per second and you put it in the spot. No, you had to talk about every tube, every wire. It was just crazy. I felt like I was holding something not ancient, but it felt ancient. It had that same feeling. It also made me feel like we were onto something too. So I was like, this should be in a museum. I love Jeremy. He's great, but this probably shouldn't be in his house. And he also feels similarly. He's excited. He's hopefully going to help us get it in the Computer History Museum on loan from Archive in the future. 
And I was like, we're going to do this a lot. Like we're going to take a lot of things that are tucked away in vaults and family offices and corporate collections and closets. And we're going to put them out into places where people can see them and experience them and have this moment. So let's talk about the next phase of the object's life. I don't know what the right term is in museums, but I think of other business models, shelf space. So a museum only has so many walls, so much space. You have a unique way to curate items, to have this community select and decide what matters with these themes. But now you've got a group of items. How do you ensure that that item is actually seen by the world and doesn't just go in the archive storage unit somewhere else? Right out of the gate, I don't want to pay for the archive storage unit. (laughs) I've run warehouses before. I did that business. I don't want to do that again. The whole mandate for us is finding public partnerships for where these things can go so people can experience them. Art collectibles, broadly, people want to see them. So you actually have this interesting moment where every item is both an out-of-home billboard for us. So putting them out in the world means more people will see them, which means there'll be a QR code where people scan to learn about this that takes them to archive and drives revenue, flow, memberships, interests into the system. So one, I want them out there because it's advertising and thousands of items become thousands of little billboards of interest. Second, I think of them as BD and relationship brokerage. There are things that we can use to bring value back to the community. An example that I'd love to see is maybe we got a beautiful piece of work that would look great in the Austin Proper Hotel. They have interesting art in that lobby, but we could find something that significantly elevates it. And for that, they take on the security. It's already there. They take on the climate control, already there. They already have the space, already there. There's zero OPEX increase for them besides a slight insurance premium, which is probably relatively minimum net of their entire insurance already. So pretty great thing for them. They create an amazing Instagram moment in their lobby that gets tagged thousands of times with people showing this new object, these things. And with that, we could probably broker a free room upgrade for any archive member with an active NFT because you've agreed to place this object there. I think we can do that playbook thousands of times. So you start to turn your archive membership into not just this curating community piece around culture, but an actual cultural perks card, where because of our placement in all these different institutions globally, we can drive value back in as well, which also increases the value of the membership beyond just we get to come together and vote. Now being a member means you get to do all other kinds of things through it. My goal is to drive 100% of items out into public spaces. I think those could be hotel lobbies, corporate collections, museums themselves. Universities are an amazing opportunity. They have often ample space and security endowments and ways to handle things. And now you're putting them in front of another generation of people who might be inspired by them. That was my next question was like, do you see yourself, instead of just going to museums and being a new cog in the same old wheel, you have this vision of other places where these special things can be seen, but still balances the safety security of them not being destroyed. First of all, there's a lot of discussions generally about the experience of things and how do you maximize that vis-a-vis impact. I can give you a perfect running discussion right now. The Louvre, an amazing place. The Louvre should exist. Tons of incredible art from hundreds and thousands of years. A lot of it is religious. So when you're looking at religious art in the context of the Louvre, you tend to be looking at it in the context of the artist's significance. And this is a significant work next to other extremely significant works. So what it's doing is it's elevating those items by proxy and proximity to everything around it. But most likely that art itself was probably supposed to be in a church or a synagogue or a mosque. It was actually created to be experienced very differently than a thousand people cramming into a hallway taking photos of it. In our world, we would have no problem if we, for some reason, acquired a piece of religious work because that was what happened at some moment. 
putting it in a place that it maximizes your ability to experience it in the context that it was originally supposed to do. We're not confined by those spaces. And I think there's a conversation about that with almost everything. If the Austin Proper Hotel is an incredible place to experience a local Texas artist that's grown in impact and they've created a place and a way to experience that, let's do it. Let's put it there. If the Computer History Museum puts the ENIAC patent in the best possible way to experience it, let's put it there. If the fans that Madonna had in the Vogue performance, which we just acquired from the VMAs in 1992, are best shown in the hallway of Juilliard, where people have vogued for years and things like that, let's put them there. Or they could be in the Grammy Museum, or they could be at the Grand Old Opry. There's lots of places that we could put these things. Where does it matter the most to the objects themselves? And that's our mandate, which is very freeing. It actually is restraining to have to always think in the context of the square footage that you control. Did you participate in the Constitution DAO when that happened? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did as well. It was extremely powerful and I love the idea of it. So it moves you to my next phase of this. I don't know where this exists. Do you envision this where archive starts to collect this beautiful collection of all these significant assets? Is there going to be a point where I can own a fraction of that as an investment opportunity? I don't think I might be the right person to decide this is great, but I know your team and the people you let into that room are great at it. And if somebody wanted to, could they participate that as a small investor? Our plan is to bifurcate out governance, access, community, all those pieces from value. I largely think that governance 1.0 is a failed state. Everyone tried to maximize everything into one token. And that's created this weird, no one votes, everyone's speculating, half of your token is owned by 15 people. I think that was a great idea. It kind of doesn't work in the way you'd expect. What you want is very clear access gateways, which is the NFT membership side, and then very clear ownership pathways, which we think can be a token side. Over time, I believe we will move into that space. This isn't on the record saying it's done or happening yet, but over time, we think that's there. We also think the uniqueness of fractionalization of individual pieces means you can do things like an overarching archive collection where 10% of every object's value is in one thing. Then you could say, well, what if I just wanted fine art or just sports and collectibles? You could take pieces of the value of just that and move some of that ownership into just the fund that has those stratifications. So you could invest in specific pieces of this while your investment capital is still being rallied into the treasury and then reallocated by the votes of the community. So now you have 10,000 person curatorial boards out there with their entire networks working on your behalf to get the right items, as opposed to just giving BlackRock some money or just giving Iconic some capital, et cetera. I actually think those people come to us to allocate resources into our community. And our community is now economically incentivized because they're driving more value in objects through their membership. We have a great team that helps us do this podcast. And they were going through some of the job postings. There was a term that we got curious about, on-chain pricing oracles. We started to speculate, are you going to be pricing assets? Do you have to list these? We're super geeked out about what you're doing with on-chain pricing oracles. I think you have two types of people in crypto. Well, you have a lot of different types of people in crypto, but there's a demarcation line right now that we sit right firmly in the discussion of, which is everything in crypto needs to be completely crypto native. We don't care about real estate. I don't care about your physical items. I don't care about your experiences IRL. If it can't be completely 100% vetted, backed, moved on chain, then we don't care. Then you have the other side, which is one of our investors, Jared Dicker, TCG Crypto. They're big on this. You're not going to get the other 7 billion people on the planet just with banks. The rest of the world cares about Spider-Man comics and tickets to shows and going out to dinner, buying homes. 
you actually are going to have to figure out how to bridge the real world on chain. The toughest part for us is how do you thread that needle? And this is a call for help for anyone that wants to participate as well as a tough part is Jeremy Norman appraises the ENIAC patent. Cool. We have a certificate. I can take a photo of that. I can mint it. I can have Jeremy sign it with his wallet and say, this is my docs to Jeremy Norman wallet. I verify that this is worth $10,000. Cool. But that is not backing something on chain. That is one single fail point of data that isn't taking into account enough to back something like a stable coin or reserve currency or anything. So one of the things we're thinking about is, can you programmatically look at whole indices, constant transactions, comparable items, trades, every eBay sale, every Christie's, Sotheby's auction, everything at Barnaby's, every private sale, everything that's being listed across everything, and synthesize that into a pricing oracle for individual items in the collection. The same way you would look at the items and assets backing DAI, for instance, in real time to establish a continued stable floor or growing floor or decreasing floor of the underlying value of the whole collection. We've thought of probably seven distinct ways to do this at varying different levels of believability slash technical feasibility, but they all come back to at some point you do need a pipe that is pushing data that is unbiased. That's what we're looking to there. So when you think about that, it's a pretty intense technical role. And a lot of our technical stuff is being obfuscated right now with the consumer side, but we're doing a lot of pretty intense stuff on the background around physical bridging. I love that. We could talk about that problem forever. I just love pricing assets, especially as they become less and less liquid is one of the coolest problems in the world because it's never perfect, but it has to be done for all these other things to work. What becomes crazy is it's an inverse problem. In theory, super exclusive items actually have more likelihood of liquidity as they get more exclusive because they are simply more valuable now. The scarcity actually demands that someone will acquire it because it's so limited that your pool of humanity just becomes tighter. But it also means there's less data because there's less transactions, volume, et cetera. So you have this weird reciprocal dilemma on how you do it, where it's like, well, clearly this is worth more. Clearly a basketball team, clearly they're worth a lot. But it's not like they're selling every week. So if I told you what's a basketball team worth, we can only look at the last few transactions of basketball teams to say what they've gone up and down. It's not like every week someone flips one, but we know that they're worth billions of dollars. So how do you put that on chain? It's a super cool problem. The follow-up question I was going to ask to get both your ethos and what you're doing at Archive is, I noticed it seems that you guys love building your own tools. Some founders and entrepreneurs are like, look, I have to because nothing exists. Or do you think that's part of your secret sauce is to build out the best in class to do exactly what Archive needs? This is a multi-part nuanced question. Part one is there's a lot of people investing in people that are building tooling for online communities that aren't running online communities. And most likely the thing that will win will actually come out of someone or some group that has actually built something that they needed. Most successful products come out from that period. Like Uber came because they needed it. It was something they wanted. Airbnb came out of a necessity. Usually you don't build the solution to the problem that you don't actually experience. At least the winner doesn't usually. So we're pretty bullish internally on, we're going to solve our unique set of problems with as much effort as we can on our own. And if that turns out to be a solution to others, we'll probably offer it out to the world in some different way. People have already been paying us about archive points, for instance, like, oh, you built a lot of crazy integrations across Twitter and Discord and Google Sheets. There's so many different ways that we're tracking metrics that people are thinking about that. They want a non-financialized internal gamification system, basically, that they don't want to build from scratch. So like, oh, 
we're already onto something with archive points. That's kind of interesting. And that came purely out of us having a problem. I think there will be tooling that does become universal or at least becomes relatively plug and play. Things that are like the Salesforce equivalent of Web3. Geneva is a really cool product for mobile communities, I think is probably going to do a little better of a job than Discord. But besides big, heavy, insane lifts, like recreating Google Sheets or something, which no one's going to do, a lot of the stuff is really distinct. You're going to have problems with your ethos if you suddenly have to move out your users to other people's data centers. It's kind of how I think. And I also think a big mandate of crypto historically has been transparency, but ownership of your own data. And I don't love the idea of every community getting farmed for its data and eventually recreating the same things that we have now, which is what I think happens if you consistently start centralizing all the tools and services under one main product. It'll be great for corporate clients. It'll be great for Adidas DAO or whatever. I'm sure that'll happen and they're not going to want to build from scratch and there'll be businesses there. But if you're intentionally building a grassroots community that can build something, you're probably going to want to own a lot of your own stack. That's super interesting. We try to end these podcasts with the same question. It's kind of a great spot, actually. Tom, what are you most excited to see built over the next six months? And what are you most excited to see built over the next six years? Expanding out of Web3 broadly, maybe I'm just like everyone else. I've been down this crazy Dolly, mid-journey, stable diffusion rabbit hole. I spent enough time gaming adjacent with one of the apps we built at one point that I know the dev pipeline on those, on creating all the art and all this stuff and all these pieces. And I feel like we're legitimately a couple iterations away from being able to just create amazing things with words and descriptions and a couple hours of iteration on that as opposed to thousands of days. What will that look like in the hands of the people who have been spending thousands of days if you suddenly give them the ability to be like superhuman? So I'm interested in that. I think it's going to change the way we do stuff. At Archive, for instance, we basically have mandated, we never want to violate copyrights and things by using trademark imagery. And we have to deal with this a lot because we're working with artists and things that are owned. So we're using AI graphics for all of our flyers and invites to stuff. All the backgrounds now, we're generating them all because we'd rather create new art than pull from historical stuff that might be not financially incentivizing the people who owned it. On a six-year time horizon, I've been in this crypto rabbit hole for like 10 years. I think my first Bitcoin transaction was like 2013. We're going through technological cycles here in roughly five-year periods that have been 10-year periods for tech broadly, 90s, 20s, aughts, 10s. Seeing that from 2010 to 2015, 2015 to 2020, 2020 to 2025, we're in the middle of another build cycle. And we'll see in six years the fruits of that with a lot more regulation, a lot more senior people in it, a lot more dev. And I'm unbelievably bullish on what happens when you have that convergence of things that can tap into the next billion people past the snake oil moment, which I think we just came out of, which is inevitable in every industry, into the real viable build moments. And I think we're going to see a renaissance of art and culture and creatives tied to finally getting paid what they deserve in an ecosystem that is significantly more meritocratic around what is important and what isn't versus being force-fed things of importance based upon algorithms tied to advertisements. And that seems transformative for what happens for the next 50 years of culture on the planet. I'd like to see that. I think it's going to be flatter. It's going to be so much more interconnected. Tom, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That went fast. This is really fun. 
To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. <laughs>